Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest this week is Heather McGee, and she's amazing. Heather is the chair of the board of directors for Color of Change, America's largest racial justice organization. She is also the author of the new book, which is incredible, The Sum of Us, now available in bookstores across the country. You don't hear much about the racial wealth gap. But you should. Low-income families of color are especially disadvantaged because they're less likely to have savings or inherit wealth and face significant barriers to building wealth. I'm a white male, and I am prejudiced. And the reason it is, it's something I wasn't taught, but it's kind of something that I learned. I think people were surprised that a black woman would show such compassion for a prejudiced white man, and they were surprised that a white man would admit his bias. My name is Heather McGee. I'm the author of the new book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. And I am working to convince everyone that racism, you know what? It's bad for us all. Sorry, not sorry. Heather, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. I'm really excited to have you. You start your book with the question, why can't we have nice things? So I'm going to pose this question to you. Why can't we have nice things? Racism, Alyssa, it's racism. No, I mean, seriously, I, when I think about nice things in this formulation, I'm not talking about like laundry that does itself or drive through espresso and things like that. I'm talking about the nice things that every high functioning society should have, like universal health care, paid family leave, universal child care, I don't know, a public health system to not have the single worst response to a global pandemic, well-funded public schools in every neighborhood, the things that we all feel like, you know what? How about just food and clean water at this clean point? Clean water, clean air, people being able to afford their rent and their utilities, that kind of thing. So I spent nearly 20 years working in economic policy, trying to move the needle in Washington and state houses, trying to present the facts to policymakers and say, hey, you know, if we just did this. And what would they say to you? Like, what is the reason why we can't get this done? The people who agree that it should be done say very often that we can't afford it. Mind you, at a time of record corporate profits, at a time where we can always afford more and more tax cuts and more and more wars, but they say we can't afford it. We've got to find a way to pay for it. And then there are people who disagree, and they often end up doing a story that I recount in the book, where they sort of lean on these kind of stereotypes about people not deserving help and about government being the problem. When it comes down to it, you know, the reason I joke and say we can't have nice things because of racism is that ultimately these beliefs that the people in power so often have about the deservingness of our fellow Americans are very racialized ideas. And the fact is that I went on this journey for almost four years across the country, Mississippi, Maine, California, and back again. And I kept running into all of these stories, white people, brown and black, explaining how they kind of lost everything to this 
toxic mix of racism and greed. And I was able to really find the fingerprints of racism on all of our big vexing public problems in American society. I have such a hard time not getting like I feel my blood pressure go up when I have these conversations, because it's so unnerving that we can't face it head on and that people are refusing to accept the truth about this country and face the history of this country like so many other countries have been able to do successfully before. I mean, you look at Germany, you look at South Africa. If South Africa can figure out a way to abolish apartheid, and it took a long time, but become a more just equitable society. It's infuriating that we can't figure it out here. And you write in your book that we're living in the inequality era. To understand this struggle in America, we have to look at the role of race in our economy. For people of color in the U.S., the root of our financial insecurity stems from institutional racism and white supremacy that has existed since the founding of this country. It really began in the late 1970s and the early 1980s, where you just think about your median average midpoint in the income distribution family and how much they have to struggle to make ends meet, how much the costs for the basics from healthcare to housing to college have gone up while wages have stagnated. At the same time, there's a ton of money being made on the other end, right? You've got corporations paying their CEOs hundreds of times more than their average worker. And it used to be, you know, 25 times, 50 times more than their average worker. And so it's really a situation where the richest 1% owns more than the entire middle class. And the billionaires keep getting richer. And the billionaires keep getting richer and profiting off our pain. I mean, the way that billionaires have gotten richer during this pandemic is just such a stark example of it. And you have over 40 million people who are in poverty. You have childhood hunger and childhood poverty at astronomical levels, and we can afford to do better. We could end poverty in this country from just government spending and government benefits, not even touching what businesses could do to stop paying poverty wages. But just on the government side, we could end poverty in this country for what the Trump tax cuts cost, plus about 12 percent. I mean, what did that money do? What did that money do? It was so skewed towards the wealthy and corporations who are already wealthy and already powerful. We know this story. Those of us who are focused on what's wrong with our economy, as I have been my whole career, know the story, know the figures. We can talk about them to we're blue in the face. And yet what I discovered in the course of my journey to write this book, The Sum of Us, is that people who should have a vested interest in solving these economic problems so often are not because of racial resentment. And that this country, most importantly, actually had it figured out, like had the formula for widely shared economic prosperity, right? It used to be that a single guy could graduate from high school, get married, buy a house that was subsidized and affordable, don't have to have a college degree, get a good job that they could have for the rest of their life with healthcare and retirement benefits. And if you wanted to go to college, you could do so for virtually free on the GI Bill and because college costs were low for everybody. But all of that investment, all of those rules that made that possible had an asterisk. And the asterisk was that they were largely whites only. And what I discovered in my research is that once the integration came, once the civil rights movement came, white people in mass sort of walked away from the idea that everybody should have a good standard of living. And it ushered in the inequality era. And we're sort of still stuck there. It's just resentment and pure racism. 
Was it fear of losing their part of the pie? I mean, go through for me, what are some of the consequences for a society with such broad economic inequality and wealth distribution? What are those consequences and where does it leave us for 20 to 30 years from now? So I have worked my whole life in policy advocacy, in some ways being hamstrung by what we could demand from our politicians in terms of the things that would give everyone equal opportunity and a great quality of life by the sort of tyranny of the white moderate. The idea that like white moderates, whether they're, you know, the Joe Manchins of the world or whatever, are going to be like, no, you can't have that, that you can't afford it. Senator, we've got a lot of families right now waiting on this COVID relief. So the first question is a simple one. What happens now and how soon could that money be released? Well, the $1,400 is going to go out the door. I have all, uh, I mean, I have all the faith and confidence that'll happen. What they want to do is target it. And they're looking at basically the people that are receiving it, what income level. I've grown up my entire life in a situation where white people have voted for the Republican or voted against the Democrats since the Democratic Party became the party of civil rights in the 1960s. That has been my reality. And so I'm looking into this data for this book, and I find data that shows that nearly 70% of white people in the late 1950s and early 1960s believed that the government ought to provide a job to everyone who wanted one, and that the government ought to provide a minimum standard of living in the country, basically a universal basic income, a job guarantee and a universal basic income. 70% of white people agreed with this idea. I was like, who are these white people? Like, where where did you go? You know, like, Right, exactly. And, and did they just not have kids and pass down that information? That's astounding. And what did you find out? Where did they go? That was last recorded at that high level in 1960. By 1964, after 1963, it became very clear the Democrats were going to be the party of civil rights, where Kennedy was talking about civil rights, where the March on Washington happened. By, between 1960 and 1964, the support among white people for the jobs guarantee and the minimum income went from nearly 70% to 35%. And it's stayed low ever since. It became clear that the people that the white majority had been taught to disdain and distrust were going to be a part of that free stuff. Basically, white people loved handouts when it was only going to people that they thought were worthy. And so much of the stereotypes and the disrespect for people who are struggling, the criminalization, the gut level, often unconscious bias against black and brown people is showing up in our political system so that it has made white people vote against a higher standard of living for everyone time and time again, ever since the civil rights movement. The story at the heart of my book is the story of when towns across the country, not just in the South, took what used to be sort of this really emblematic thing about American culture was that we built over the first half of the 20th century over 2,000 resort-style public pools, like these big, beautiful pools in the heart of our communities that were free and open to the public, paid with tax dollars, that could hold like thousands of swimmers. These were like beautiful pools. And they were largely segregated and whites only. There was a belief that Black people were dirty and unclean and should not, of course, be allowed to swim alongside white people. And when the civil rights movement came along and Black people said, hey, it's our tax dollars too. Why can't we swim in this public benefit, in this public amenity? Why can't we swim in this public resource? So many towns across the country drained their public pools rather than allowing Black families to swim too. What year is this? 
This was 1959. I mean, it happened in different places across the country, Ohio, West Virginia, Louisiana. The one that I went to for my book and walked the grounds where they never rebuilt the pool was in Montgomery, Alabama. And that was January 1st, 1959, that they closed the pool. They closed the entire Parks and Recreations Department of Montgomery, Alabama for 10 years. They sold off the animals in the zoo. It was like, nobody can have any nice things, literally, if we have to share them. Amanda Gorman said in her beautiful poem at the inauguration, she said, we've seen a force that would shatter this nation rather than share it. We've seen a force that would shatter our nation rather than share it, would destroy our country if it meant delaying democracy. And this effort very nearly succeeded. But while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. And she was referring, obviously, to the insurrectionists, but it's a larger quandary that's really at the crux of the American experiment. Can we have a multiracial democracy? Because this zero-sum idea that you alluded to, Alyssa, this idea that is a predominant idea in the white story of America, which is there's a limited pie, that progress for people of color comes at the expense of white people. It's a story that was created and manufactured and sold to justify slavery and expropriation and genocide of indigenous land and indigenous people. And yes, of course, like the zero sum was real at a certain point. In our founding, it was absolutely, I will profit at your expense, right? I will take what you have. I will leave nothing from you. We are fully in competition for resources here. But that's not the formula that is serving us today. And I really think that the thing that gives me hope and optimism, you started by saying that (laughs) So it makes your blood pressure boil and rise. But the thing that gives me hope and optimism is that across the journey that I took, I met people who had sort of really rejected the zero-sum paradigm of racial competition, had really decided that ultimately the only way we're going to succeed is together. These are the kinds of topics that I was talking about on a public television live call-in show in August of 2016. I was about halfway through the program when a man called in, identified as Gary from North Carolina, and he said, I'm a white male and I'm prejudiced. He then went on to detail his prejudice, talking about black men and gangs and drugs and crime. But then he said something that I'll never forget. He said, but I want to change and I want to know what I can do to become a better American. That collective action, whether through government or through organizing or through unions, is the only way that people have ever really sort of guaranteed a high quality of life for themselves and that we've got to just do it now across lines of race. And that's not actually so hard because ultimately we all want the same things, right? We want safety for our families and our children. We want to take care of our needs and live out our dreams. And that's the same across race. I'm just trying to figure out the timeline here, because in our lifetimes, in most of the history of this country, probably all of the history of this country, Black poverty has basically been built into the American society. 
since the times of slavery. And the fact that we haven't faced that is a real problem, right? And then we go to the civil rights movement and we got schools that were desegregated in the 1950s, right? And then we had Nixon in the 60s, late 60s, who was pushing this message of colorblind, right? So that he could push basically a harmful agenda. And he enacted a series of super discriminatory economic policies during his six years in the White House. And he called for this idea of a free and open society as a way to place blame on any poverty or crime that might occur. Then we have the 80s. We have Reagan, who cut the budget for a lot of social programs, which I would think had something to do with where we are now, leaving every city leader without federal aid, which we're also facing right now, and little chance to battle poverty and unemployment in Black neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And so other than those moments in a modern society, which is what I consider where we are right now, what else has happened throughout the history that has brought us to this point, to where we are right now? Well, I truly believe that if you don't understand the history, then you really can't understand the why of the current state. So exactly what you're saying. In the book, I lay out the history of some of the many, many ways that today's wealth that people have today is really about history showing up in your wallet. It's about the history Hmm. of the lifetimes of free stuff, of handouts that white people got from our government. The government was sort of more committed in the 20th century when it was a racially exclusive social contract to the high quality of life of its people. So that meant that you had from the Homestead Act, which was free grants of government property for like a filing fee in the wake of the Civil War, you had the land-grant colleges, which took Indian land and gave it to each state and said, here, use this to fund or to build on for what would be basically free state colleges and universities, which was an unheard of government largesse at the time. Like There was very much a sense that the people across the world were looking at America and saying, wow, you have really figured out the formula for investing in your people and unleashing their capacity. To the fact that In coming out of the New Deal, we had a federal government that mapped the entire country and said, these are the places where Black people and brown people and some ethnic immigrants live, and they are high credit risks because of their color. And therefore, the government should not support the lending by banks in any of these places. It's a practice known as redlining. Buying a house is supposed to be the way middle-class Americans build wealth. Of course, these days, many Americans are struggling to make this dream come true. And for people of color, it used to be practically impossible. And that was by design. Today, the homeownership gap between Black and white and the sort of property value gap between Black and white, much of it can be traced back to those original lines, like to the block-by-block basis. So you've got government-sponsored segregation. The federal government encouraged the development of suburban housing developments and said, we're going to subsidize and guarantee lenders and housing builders to make these developments on the condition that they not sell to Black people. 
on the condition that they not sell to Black people. And so, so much of our wealth in this country comes from a little bit of money we had here and there, you know, a house our aunt owned. And when she died, she was able to pass a little bit down to the point where today there's this racial wealth gap. That means that Black families have less than a dime in wealth for every dollar owned by the average white family. I mean, fuck this. I'm sorry. Like, seriously, we have to fix this. And I want to see it in our lifetimes. We have to fix this. And we can. You know, what you say, we can fix it. I mean, this is the thing that gives me hope is that public policy decisions made this mess. And so public policy has got to get us out of it. It's not about individuals doing the best they can, right? A household headed by a Black college graduate has less wealth than a household headed by a white high school dropout at the average level. Because it's not about how hard you work or how much education you get. It's about decisions that were largely made by the government before you were even born. So when you said, Alyssa, that maybe it's a commission, maybe it's reparations, it is both of those things. Representative Barbara Lee out of Oakland has sponsored this resolution for something called the Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation effort, which is not just a commission that happens in Washington and they issue a white paper. The original idea behind it is something that would happen in communities, where communities would get together and stakeholders, the public, they would meet in libraries, the business leaders and the organizers and everyday people would learn together about the racial story of their own community, which is always just such a rich, uglier and more beautiful history than we are ever taught in our Mm. school. Right. So you would learn the history, rewrite it together, do some community visioning about what a society free of racism would look like, what it will take, and then really get people on the same page, which is necessary before we can turn the page. That's the piece that's missing. I applaud all of the efforts by the Biden administration to put racial equity at the center. I mean, President Biden in his first speech on this actually talked about the zero sum and refuting it and said racism has a cost for everyone. And I was like cheering. But I also think we need to organize around this because the right wing is organizing all the time. Yes. I was driving cross country last week and I saw a billboard that had a picture of Donald Trump and it said, they're coming for you. He's just in the way. I mean, it was so powerful, like at a visceral level. It's like, who's the they? That's what I'm saying. They're so much better at the messaging. And maybe it's just easier to message fear than it is hope. There is a more visceral reaction to fear than there is of messaging in hope. But in so much of what I do for a living, we're always trying to figure out the story and what is the heart of the story and how can we tell the story? And maybe we need to start like recruiting I don't know, directors to work for the DNC to figure out how to shape these narratives in a way to be able to compete with how successful the right has been through decades of this messaging. And we're seeing the payoff for them in this rise of white supremacy. I'm wondering if there is a difference in the ways that white people and people of color view the culture right now and the inequities in our culture. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I will say that the pandemic has brought people closer together in terms of the public opinion data about what white people are willing to support. But generally speaking, there's a 20 to 30 percentage point gulf in opinion between Black and brown people on the one hand and white people on the other about what we think the government should do, even down to climate change. This is something I wasn't expecting to write about in the book. The stereotype of an environmentalist, it's like a white, crunchy guy hiking with a Patagonia on, right? Like, it's like, okay, it's the white people that care about the environment. 
No. In fact, according to the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication and lots of other studies, but they've really honed in on this, white people are less likely to be concerned about climate change than people of color are. But when you break it down by race inside of America, there's some very interesting distinctions. You're going to be able to see that the percentage of Americans who think that it should be a top priority for the president and Congress amongst non-white Americans has stayed fairly consistent all the way back a decade. But for whites generally, it has trended down before leveling off over the past few years. And you see there that not only is there a big gap, but there's a gap that's widening over time where white voters prioritize dealing with climate change significantly less. I mean, that's a huge, like a 20, 30 point gap. And if it were just up to white people, the country wouldn't act at all. Is that because we are not affected by it as much as communities of color? That is the thing, right? The chapter in my book is called The Same Sky, because I think that's the illusion, right? That's the illusion that whiteness gives you is that you are sort of secure and safe and will always be protected from the harms that might befall people. And yet we're all under the same sky, right? I mean, in California, when there's droughts and wildfires, like, yes, white people who are wealthier are more resilient, but the fire's coming for everybody, right? It's really part of the lie of white supremacy communicates to white people is the idea that you don't need anybody else, you're fine on your own, that there's no space for collective solutions and you should be distrustful of government. And so there's a big thing of like, well, climate change action would require government and I don't trust government. You know, my dad used to trust government a lot more when it was the New Deal and FDR and he was getting the GI Bill. But then something happened. Government sort of switched sides all of a sudden in the 1960s. So I don't trust government anymore. I'm being sort of glib about it, but that's kind of the narrative. So I do think that there's a cultural gulf, things like debt-free college and canceling student debt. That's a problem that impacts Black students much more than it does white students, but it does impact the majority of white students. Now the majority of white students have to borrow to go to public colleges. But because of that wealth gap, it's more acute for Black families, but it's not serving anybody well. But Black people are more likely to want there to be student debt cancellation and debt-free college going forward. Well, because white people think there's an entitlement, which is like, well, wait a minute, I paid for college. Yeah, there's a little bit of that. You know what I mean? And I was able to pay off my student loans. Why should we forgive other people's debt? Most opposed are older white Republicans who are absolutely the folks who went to college when the government paid for the cost of college, right? And now they're saying, I don't want the government to help these young people who should be working for it. Elizabeth Warren does this very well. She's like, you know, it cost me $50 a semester. Yes, I was able to work my way through college. (laughs) And I think part of this also is we got to talk about and we have to restructure capitalism. Mm -hmm. I mean, for the mere fact that it functions by allowing the exploitation of the many by the wealthiest few. And for this imbalance to work, a political system has to be in place where we can fix that, where we can tax them and we can pay our workers more for their labor. And how is it justifiable to keep certain people down as we're consistently lifting people up? It's not. But racist, I think, tendencies and inclinations have made it justifiable to these corporations. And there is this incredible disparity that you write about in your book. That is so true, but nobody seems to be talking about it. The fact that we really are one of the most, you know, wealthiest countries in the history of the world, and yet our per capita spending on critical 
critical, critical things like infrastructure is among the lowest in the world. And that makes a big difference, not only in enabling people to get to work, enabling people to have clean water, which is such a problem in this country that we also are not talking about. So why do you think that this is happening? Why do you think we, and by the way, infrastructure has bipartisan support, or so they say, has bipartisan support. That is the one issue that no matter who's in office, they always promise infrastructure's next. (laughs) Well, infrastructure costs money. Infrastructure costs money. It makes money. Right. When we invest in infrastructure as a society, it redounds in multiple times in terms of economic growth, but it costs money. And ultimately, the Republican parties being so wedded to tax cuts and then just enough, frankly, white Democrats being not willing to pick the fight about how we prioritize our spending and who we ask to pay for it has meant that we stay, you know, at the bottom of the barrel, that the American Society of Civil Engineers gives us a D plus for our roads and bridges. On the campaign trail, it's been a tantalizing promise for years. Let's build wireless networks into rural communities so everybody can tap into world markets. Let's put construction workers back to work. A $1 trillion infrastructure plan to build new roads and bridges and airports and tunnels and highways and railways all across our great nation. Upgrades to infrastructure to improve our commutes, speed shipments of products, and add U.S. construction jobs by the millions. But inaction in Washington has made it all a running joke. This is the dramatic conclusion of Donald Trump's Infrastructure Week. This is the country that used to show the world how to do it, right? How to get it done. This is a country that had massive infrastructure projects. And I I want some of that. You asked about American patriotism. I want every American to have nice things, right? And I don't mean like fancy stuff. I just mean I want us to feel proud of the condition of the things that we hold in common, right? I want every neighborhood to have public schools that are worthy of our children. I want us to have high-speed rail and solar panels and geothermal and wind power and cutting-edge technology. I want us to not feel like we are crumbling and fading and that our best days are behind us. And I will say that when the sort of white nationalist nostalgia of Donald Trump's message right? The idea that we need to make America great again. It really tapped into this unfortunate circumstance where there was a sort of high tax, high investment, high quality of life, public pool in every community version of America that was whites only. And when the civil rights movement came along and it was expanded to include all Americans for the first time, the white majority walked away from supporting it. And now they're mad at people of color that they lost the pool, right? That the pool was drained as well. That racial resentment, but it's like, it was your choice. You could have just shared it with us. I promise we wouldn't have ruined it. In fact, when you think about reparations, which is also something that you asked about, when you think about reparations, I like to say that Think about just what the descendants of a stolen people have created without any kind of inherited wealth and with the odds stacked against them and the rules rigged against them. Black people have contributed so much to this society. Just imagine if the sons and daughters of white ethnic immigrants, 
you know, everybody had a little bit of help from the government, a little bit of wealth on their side. Just imagine what people would be able to do. We're competing with some of our best players on the sidelines. And that's really the point of it, is that racism has a cost for everyone and we can prosper together. We can actually only really prosper together, right? There's a degree to which white people who are middle class are definitely doing better than struggling brown, black, and indigenous people, but they're not, I don't think, doing as well as everybody would be if we really had universal health care and paid family leave and child care and all of that. For sure. And we need to shift how we look at those things as not being handouts, but hand ups. Mm-hmm. Right. I want to know, other than legislation, how do you feel like we move past this? It seems like we just need to totally change the governmental mindset around spending. But in order to do that, we have to change the mindset of people. So how do we get to that point? I do think that the movement that has been sparked this year with the murder of George Floyd and has been put in the works for years by Black Lives Matter is a really crucial part of it because what it's doing is it's opening up the place for conversation, for education, and for healing. Ultimately, we are a very sick society. And of course we are. I mean, our society has been shaped by racist, dehumanizing ideas and by violence of the most intimate kind and the most public violence, right? And so we have a lot of healing to do. And that's why I do think that this effort that Barbara Lee is championing in, in Congress, which would basically give resources and a framework for communities to do this kinds of truth, racial healing, and transformation work is really important because it does have to start at the community level. First, this is a marathon we're in for justice. Remember, 401 years ago, my ancestors were enslaved. So we have to run each lap of this race and take that baton and keep going. So it's important now that we support reparations, H.R. 40, because now's the time to repair the damage. And also my bill, H.R. 100, which sets up a true racial healing and transformation commission. We need to turn off the spigot of the right-wing disinformation and the zero-sum story, right? I mean, we've got a major supply problem, which is that there are companies and politicians that are profiting from selling hate. And there are people who are desperate enough to buy hate, but we've got to stop the supply. And so we need media reform. We need corporations to stand up and say, you know what, I'm yes. not any of these platforms anymore because it's sick and it's sad and it's putting us at a competitive disadvantage globally, right? We've got like countries lining up to take advantage of how stupid and gullible we are, yeah. and how, you know, easily manipulated we are. And I think that it's just deeply not in the national interest, but we've got to, as you said, Alyssa, we've got to rewrite the story. Tell me about the solidarity dividend. Yeah. So I kept coming up against these stories of people actually rejecting the zero sum worldview 
of people coming together across lines of race and fighting for things that we can only win together, that we can't win alone. Things like cleaner air, higher wages, better funded schools, right? These are the things that like, I can do all I want on my own, but it's not going to get there. Like I'm not going to win healthcare for anybody but myself. There's some things that we have to do together. And in a racially diverse society, we're going to have to, in order to get a critical mass, do so across lines of race. So that's the solidarity dividends, the idea of these gains that can be unlocked through coming together across race and not letting the wealthy and the powerful divide us by race, which has been their core strategy since the founding of this country. It's amazing. You work with Color of Change, which is one of my favorite organizations on the planet. Will you tell us a little bit about the work that you do and how my listeners can support your work? Absolutely. So Color of Change is the nation's largest online racial justice organization. We are 7 million members strong, Black people and their allies who are fighting to hold corporations and government accountable for the way that Black people are able to live and thrive. And this summer was obviously a year when so many people were looking for an institution that had the strategy and the reach to be able to make change all over the country. And I'm just so lucky that Color of Change had been building for nearly 20 years since Katrina, actually, was when we were founded. And Color of Change takes on district attorneys for bad charging decisions, district attorneys who are feeding the machine of mass incarceration. Color of Change takes on the platforms that are selling profit for hate. We do a lot of work in Hollywood to make sure that we change the narrative and tell Black stories in a way that restores the dignity and full humanity of our people, because we do believe that stories matter. Through the Voting Wild Black PAC, we give people a way to reach Black voters and to organize Black voters. We're in every state in the country. We are mostly online, but we do a lot of offline organizing as well. And we let people show up and take their outrage and channel it into action. And you can find us at colorofchange.org. And then finally, what gives you hope? You know, I think about January 6th, which was just such a terrible day in American history. And it was not unlike other instances of mostly white mob violence in our society, in that it was a rage against the possibility of a multiracial democracy. I am more hopeful because of what happened on January 5th, which was a multiracial coalition of people in Georgia following the lead of Black women who were organizing to say enough is enough, putting a bet on a young Jewish guy <laughs> and the heir and successor to Martin Luther King and his church, right? Basically saving the country and possibly by extension the world. And nobody thought it could happen. I didn't think it could happen, but it happened. And because of that, we're able to address the pandemic. We're able to address climate change. We're able to get the babies out of the cages. We're able to do so many things that is restoring justice in this country. And it happened in the most unlikely of places with some of the most unlikely people. And that is what gives me hope because America is just as much the coalition that put Democrats in charge of the Senate in Georgia on the 5th as it is the people who raided the Capitol on the 6th. Mm. Well, you give me hope, Heather. Oh, so thank you. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. The past, something that no longer holds sway over our societies, something that no longer exists. But World War II took place less than a century ago. Survivors of the Holocaust are still alive today. The Jim Crow's laws were enforced until 1965. 
que l'apartheid a été une réalité jusqu'en 1991. But this doesn't have to be the case. You, me, us, we can create the change that we want. You know, when something is bad for one of us, it is often bad for all of us. When America doesn't work for whole groups of people, it doesn't work as well as it should for the entire population. Justice, equity, representation, we just throw these words around and often just pat ourselves on the back for doing so. But we need to be more effective at convincing those in power to make real and effective change, or we need to kick them out and replace them with people who will. I love Heather McGee's idea of a solidarity dividend. It is truth that when we come together and work together, it benefits everyone. There are tangible benefits for everyone when we make sure we're all on equal footing. There is enough pie for all of us. Nobody is losing out on pie when we share it. It feels like we're on a precipice now in America. We can move one way and fundamentally change the way we work, making it a better place for all of us. Or we can retreat, turning back into the failures of the past and present and repeating them in the future. Please, let's take a better path. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 